Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Casually Profound series on the Size Eyes podcast. First video episode that I'm doing, so hopefully this comes out well. Um, I'm here at a land of a thousand hills with Stuart Watson. Um, we met within the last year uh, through mutual friend uh, Lauren Widrick, who we're both in the Grab Life by the Goal Squad, and in the few but deep conversations that we've had, I knew instantly that I wanted to have you on the uh, on the podcast. So um, I'm grateful we're spending the time together now. I'm grateful for this time. Awesome. So, I mean, speaking of uh, gratitude, uh, I'd like to go into a little bit of gratitude exercise and kind of start off with something I'm grateful for and you can share something as well. So on my end, I am grateful for the ability to do like like share my ideas just the social media talking with people just the ability to proliferate ideas in a way that hasn't in the past been readily available and it's only going you know it's growing at an exponential rate so I'm really grateful for that and there's the exponential piece of it, and, and then there's also the linear piece of it, where it's like, hey, I'm, I'm talking to I'm talking to you one-on-one, I'm talking to Lauren one-on-one, I'm talking to someone else one-on-one. So I'm, a really, I'm just really grateful for the ability to share ideas and really um, the ability to hear great ideas from really you know, profound people. How about on your end, too? Um. Along those lines, it'd be interesting to see what I would say if I hadn't heard this first. Um, I am grateful I turned 64 last Saturday. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. And I've never been 64 before. So I'm grateful for uh, continuing to learn things, you know, to be curious. There's some people in the squad who are reading this book called The Power of Wonder, um, which is a bestseller. And they say we get awe and wonder in our lives by being curious. And so one of the things I've been curious about recently is we all know kind of the things that are going to happen today. Like it's going to rain in the morning and then the sun's going to come out in the afternoon. We're pretty sure that's going to happen. Um, So we know I have this appointment with Cy and that's going to be cool. But it could be that I get in a car wreck and I don't get to make it to Psy, you know. And so I will write down not only the things that happened that I planned and the plan came off, but I'll write down what were the surprises. And then I'll say, well, was that a bad surprise, you know, like the car wreck? Or was it a good surprise? Like it was something I never expected to happen. I didn't expect that guy to be there. And I didn't expect him to talk to me about that. And it opened a door and kind of along the way of priming yourself for whatever what you want to call it, but um, luck or synchronicity or whatever to notice when something happens and you're like, it's a good thing, but I didn't expect it. Like I never could have planned for that. And if 
I will note those, like in a list or a journal, um, that I start to see more of them. You might, you might just simply call them opportunities. Like it, it was an opportunity which I could not have planned. I didn't see that. It was a, or a pleasant surprise. And so I'm grateful, like, uh, that that, that several of those have happened already today. That's amazing. That's uh, wonderful to hear. And, you know, we're halfway through the day. So <laughs> hopefully more, hopefully more to come. Um, well, yeah, in that attitude of gratitude, I'd love to walk us through a quick visualization exercise uh, where we close our eyes and take some time to be present in the moment, in the now, taking a listen to our breath, feeling our breath go in and out, in and out. Body completely relaxed from the top of our head all the way to the tips of our toes, our shoulders, neck, elbows, fingers, stomach, legs, feet, everything. Every cell in our body completely relaxed. Let us receive this warm energy that we are sharing today, being transferred into an amazing conversation. conversation where there is wonder, conversation that two friends are having, new revelations about each other, about ourselves, as we continue on this life of journey and exploration. At the end of this conversation, we feel this was one of the best conversations we've ever had. Soak in that feeling for a quick second. Feel. <laughs> Relaxing, refreshing. 
Awesome. Well, the first question I wanted to ask you is, who do others think Stuart Watson is? It depends on when they encounter me. But a lot of times we are our resumes, you know, and so or, or we are the context in which. So for a lot of years, you know, if I encounter somebody at my kid's school, they're like, "That's Jack's dad." Um, uh, but in the professional life, people will say, "Oh, he was the TV reporter." And then, when you're not the TV reporter, it's like, "Who are you?" You know, he's that guy who used to be the investigative reporter, and then you're the guy who used to be that. <clears throat> um, so it usually depends on the context in which people know me. I've been in 12-step recovery for a long time, so a lot of people know me as this guy who's in recovery. Um, you know, if I'm in the squad, people go, oh, he's that guy in the squad. So um, how people identify me, uh, it depends on when, when they encounter me, the context in which they encounter me. Mm. Those are the most frequent. Those are the, like the most common. Yeah. What's been, so if you had to pick one, one context, and then go deep on that. What would you say, like, if it's a you know a pie, right? Is it the, the personal side? Is it the you know the professional side? Is you know what side of it has been? Well, the, I, I suppose what I should pick is the longest lasting. And the longest lasting. Uh, uh, let me think about this for just a second. Um, was I was the son of Nell and Stuart Watson. That was the longest lasting. But in the next 10 years, the longest lasting will be I'm the husband of Lorraine Jiloff. So that will be, those will be the longest lasting relationships followed by um, I will have been sober for longer than my, I will always have been sober for longer than my, than I've known my daughter. Or no, excuse me, I will always have known my daughter, my oldest daughter and my second oldest daughter, longer than I've been sober. So I'm their dad even before I got sober. So those relationships are the longest lasting. Um, but there are plenty of people who don't even know that I have kids, you know, and then I'm like, four kids. And so then <clears throat> they may identify me by those roles, you know? Yeah. Love that. It's, right, it's like you're taking a time-based and energy-based, um, a very practical approach of like, hey, I'm this person, I'm this person, depending on who you ask, when, where. Um, I, since, since you mentioned it, I'm curious to hear more about the journey of, of, uh, of recovery of sobriety um, and what those, what that journey has looked like. Okay, is this an interview or a conversation? Do this, I get the... Yeah, this is, this is a conversation. Okay, then how, how do most people know you? Like, what, what do most people think of Sai? 
like how do they uh, relate to you? What do they think of you? Like what, what box do you check? When they look at you, they go, well, that's my friend or that's my colleague. What, what do they say to you? Um, I think more recently now, you know, coach. Ah. Um, someone who is, I think, things differently. Maybe a little bit naive, but <laughs> um, I think has has cool things to talk about when he's in a one-on-one -on -one setting, when he's like in a in a close, you know, intimate place. I think he's a he's a cool guy to hang around. So thoughtful. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I think I'd say he's probably like independent to a fault sometimes. Um, why, is, why is being independent a fault? Or as in independent, but then not sometimes the lack of awareness when to communicate with other people or the empathy that's being shown. Or so like there's that, you know, if it's a spectrum, it's like independence to full, you know, social extroversion. On that scale, sometimes I lean more heavily on the introverted, like introverted side where I need a little bit more of a balance or a little bit more of a balance can serve me um, in, in some areas. So I'm still finding that for myself. So that's probably what my, um, you know, probably what my parents would say. And, and one of the things they would say, like, hey, you know, call us more often, um, you know, open up more, be more vulnerable, be, you know, just talk about things, what's going on. Um, so I, I'm a person who likes to, uh, answer, open up a lot when I'm asked questions, since I value questions a lot. And so the, the downside of that is when someone does ask me questions, I take that as, hey, they're not interested, so why open up? So that's what I subconsciously think. Uh, but you're also <laughs> curious about other people, so you... Right, yeah, so I, I try to, you know... I try to reciprocate. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and that way you find very quickly who the narcissists are who will only talk about themselves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Whether like, they're prompted or not prompted. Right, yeah. But yeah, I, you know, that's, you know, I think that's part of why I like to have a, view this as like a, a conversation and not like an interview. It's like, it's a conversation partner is how I, um, phrase it at least internally if I don't say it externally. It's like, it's a conversation partner. Yeah, right. because when people say, um, I, I figured this out, it, it's surprising it took me this long to figure out. You can't measure how good a conversation partner someone is strictly by how often they're silent, because they could be like completely ignoring you and just pretending to pay attention. Like just because they're silent doesn't mean they're participating in the conversation. Right. <laughs> like when they come back to you, it has to be something along the lines of what you guys were talking about. Like there has to be some kind of shared thing. It can't just be, well, Cy makes his speech and then I'll talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about for three minutes. <laughs> there has to be some kind of, we're talking about the same thing or at least right. tangentially, we have to touch on the same thing. Exactly. Is, is, is that something, I, I haven't forgotten about the question I asked, but since, well, since we're on I'll ask, I'll answer the okay, second okay. question too. So what was the second one? 
You want to move on? Oh, no, no, no. I, I was going to ask about, um, from, since we're talking about the conversation, the flow and everything, how that goes, since you asked, like, hey, is this a conversation or is this an interview, right? How have you seen that with your, you know, with Voice Locket? Um, so, Voice Locket primarily is an interview. Um, because I'm talking to people about their lives and I want to draw them out. <clears throat> and so if you just want to draw them out, like they're not hiring me to talk to somebody about me. Um, they're hiring me to hear stories from their loved one, right? Stories that they might not know about. But the trick is, is that when you can relate without a long story, but just relate, if they say, if I say, um, my dad was a lawyer, you know, my uncle's a lawyer, you know, or if I say, um, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, to try to find something, and if, even if it's nothing more than, um, well, I was born of a mother, you're like, Holy cow, I have a mother. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, well, I've been sick recently. You know, I've been sick. And so we have to relate at a certain larger level to being fellow sufferers on this planet, you know. <clears throat> and then the more you can say, um, not overshare when that happens and not assume that if somebody says, my mother died, you can't say, oh, I know exactly what it's like because my mother died. That's, you have to exhibit some tact and say, um, I'm sorry to hear that. And that that's what you have to say, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I appreciate it, but really it was a blessing. You know, like whatever the person says, you've given a kind of a neutral comment to be able to keep, to facilitate what's going on, um, to sort of draw them out, as opposed to saying, oh, I'm sorry, it must be hard. Listen, we don't have to do this today, blah, blah, blah. Don't assume, just say, I'm very sorry to hear that. I'm sorry for your loss. But that's just the basic human thing to say. Right, because you're saying that when you say something like what you said later, about like, hey, we don't have to do this, Right, you're saying that is an assumption that's being built in that your your beliefs are being projected onto them. Correct. Right. Okay. If you okay. say that must have been so hard, maybe. Do you know? Right. Is is that something that you've learned just you know through life, through the interviewing, you know, through voice locket, through? I've learned it by making mistakes. <laughs> learned by by making a lot of presumptions and. And being told I was wrong, you know, and so now I don't. I try not to assume anything. Like you can't even assume that someone liked their mother. <laughs> you know, you can't. You you just you you have to sort of assume it by saying I'm sorry. And if they say, Well, I'm glad she's dead, then boy, does that tell you something? You know, that's like whoa. You know what? What happened there? 
And that's just a tremendous opening or opportunity. Yeah. What about the uh, the art of asking questions? Since, like, is that something that you just found innately that you, you just have this curiosity or is it something that you've picked up technically along the way? Both. Um, my dad was a lawyer and he had a lawsuit, a civil suit, involving a traffic accident when I was a boy. So I was six or eight years old. And along the way to some outing, um, he had to stop and basically do what reporters do, which is a door knock. You had to do the door knock and ask the neighbors if they remember this traffic accident, if anybody was around, if there are any eyewitnesses to be able to tell, you know, who's at fault. And he always remembered, and he's been gone for 11 years, he remembered that I said, Dad, why don't you talk to that guy over there? And he always remembered that, that I was like, instead of just talking to these people, why don't you talk to that guy who's over on the periphery? And so I was the kind of person in the beginning who's always sort of looking for, who might tell you this information? Um, and then uh, something that's fascinated me recently, especially with AI and with ChatGPT, is, okay, let's do an A-B test. Um, and let's put it in a matrix or a, or, or a quadrants, the four quadrants. Okay, so there will be some answers if you have the bot and the human ask a question that, that both the human and the bot can get. It's plus plus. And there'll be some answers that neither the human nor the bot can get because the person is, doesn't know or they're so shut down or defensive. Then there, there are probably going to be some answers that only the bot can get, right? Because I'll tell the bot and I won't tell the human being. But then the one that really intrigues me is what does it mean to be human? What can the human get that the bot could never get? Because the bot did not have the experience. The bot has never had diarrhea. If you're a human, you've probably had diarrhea. And so you will ask questions based upon your experience as a human that you can tell the bot to ask those questions, but there'll always be something in the human that distinguishes it. Um, and it may not be always an advantage, it may be a weakness, but, but that, you know, the more we develop AI, the more we're forced to reckon with what, what, what are humans bringing to the party? You know, like we got to bring our A game. We got to start, <laughs> we got to start developing intuition. We can't simply ask analytical questions. We got to ask questions that the programmers never thought about or couldn't put into this. And that will distinguish us and distinguish it. Uh, if nothing else, it doesn't have to be better than or less than, it can distinguish us as distinct from the bot. That there's something to be gleaned and stored inside talking as opposed to you just say, listen, I'm, we've set up a camera, we want you to show up here and just 
talk to the bot. The bot's really, really good. It'll get a great interview. From <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. There's something to us like having tea and, you know, being two humans trying to figure out these human questions that the human to bot, bot to human, bot to bot is not, there's, there's still something to being human which is distinct from all the stuff we can load into the bot. Because there are things about us that are strengths that we cannot articulate. And if we can't articulate them, then we can't get them into the code. And you'll say, well, will the bot will figure it out. No, they won't, because they didn't have the experience. Um, I just, I, I, I just don't see that happening. That we've got to figure out what it is, you know, and it forces us to up our game to like, not necessarily just prove your worth, but to prove what it means to be human, to, to really live out what it means to be human, to really call on our potential that we didn't necessarily even know we had. One question I have is, while you're talking there, is like, what does it mean for you to be human? Like, what does it mean to be human? And then, like, how have you felt human, you know, in the past week or so? Um, well, there's a guy I met, sort of tangential to this group we were in. Um, and he and I have been caught having coffee, like you and I had breakfast that day. And um, so one of his favorite books is this book, The Black Swan, which is supposedly one of the most purchased books to least read. And so I asked him to sum up what The Black Swan was about. And he said, it's about starting with knowing how improbable it is that Cy or Stuart were even born. Like, trillions and trillions and trillions to one odds that we would A, be a life form, B, be a quasi-intelligent life form, you know, and um, that I'd be looking this woman's butt as she passed us out here in front of us, and that you and I would uh, be having a conversation, which is quasi-intelligent, at least your end of it is intelligent. <laughs> and, um, and so part of it is simply to marvel at that, you know? And whether you want to call that awe or wonder, or whether you want to call it gratitude, that feeling that, holy cow, we're looking and looking and looking and looking and looking and looking and looking for air plus water plus warm enough, you know, to, to be able to produce, you know, these proteins and, and then, how did it come from protein, which we consider inanimate, to, you know, single cell or to, you know, like, it's, it's asking all that. And so in the last week, that conversation that I had with Zach uh, sparked all this curiosity about, because what this, you know, mathematician, scientist did was, on the one hand, he's known for looking at the markets and, you know, sort of predicting the, the, um, the Great Recession and, you know, the overextension of these collateralized debt. 
but on on the other hand he's saying okay what does all this say and the um, highly improbable events that we can't plan for or predict what does it say for how we should then live like how we should interact and so the intersection of science could be social science could be the physical sciences and all this you know squishy stuff religion belief philosophy absolutely fascinating to me you know the whole Tao of physics and the dancing wule masters and the you know the whole intersection of uh they 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 call it eastern mysticism but plenty of science done in the east you know and plenty of mysticism in the west so it's really kind of a false premise but the intersection of science math just straight up math and its implications for what we don't know and can't calculate like um benoit mandelbrot and the fractals and, and and you know chaos theory and all that and quantum theory what does that mean for you know me you know with three odds and a cot you know what does it mean for my daily life like how shall we then live that was a question that that was posed when i was growing up how shall we then live so if knowing this about our universe now that we've discovered this okay what does that mean about how i should live my life and to me that's the most fascinating thing is the people who realize no there's not this okay scientists over there arts and crafts you're over here no they, they collide with each other all the time all the time and music collides with math art collides with math you know everything collides with math you know the sun does it you know math is god's language you know that's the there's that math is how god speaks to us not in silence in math you know that's you know you want to know god study math well <laughs> i i majored in math oh congratulations <laughs> congratulations and did did math come from persia i know zero yeah zero was like a middle eastern yeah like arabic yeah um invention they gave us zero who gave us one two yeah i'm eight. not sure what where the counting numbers came from um it, it wasn't it wasn't in the math degree <laughs> we learned everything except the history of math <laughs> history of math is fascinating oh, because a lot of it has to do with the natural elements like uh tides and seasons and um uh, stars navigation direction you know it's everywhere yeah it's yeah, I was reading a book called Shape um, last year by Jordan Ellenberg, and he was, yeah, it was kind of a fun, easy read where he's like connecting math to um, like all these like everyday sort of situations um, in a way that someone who doesn't need to go to his PhD level or master's level class can understand. Um, and it's, it's so fascinating to see like, yeah, there's, there's, it's interesting to see, like, anyone can see the world in any way they want to, right? You can see the world through stories, right? You can see the world through math. You can see the world through art. You can see the world through systems. You can see the world through literally any lens that you have. And that's where I really think 
a a major and a career really are, right? It's like, okay, I, I majored in math, sure, what does that mean? Will I use the technical skills? I'm just going back to your question, or your statement about like, all right, now I know all this stuff, you know, quantum theory, all these fractals type of stuff, what does it mean for my everyday life? The application of the direct content may not be there, but it's the way of thinking, right? For me, it was about the, almost like a proof style of like thinking about things where, okay, here's a proposition. It feels, it's going back to like we were pointing about intuition. It's like, okay, I have an intuition. I have this thought that came to me. Does it make sense or does it not make sense? Let me write it out. Let me journal about it. And then see, okay, what are all the different ways that it makes sense? What, what are all the ways that it doesn't? Can I prove it false? Can I prove it true? Are there any cases where it's not? Etc. So then it's like, okay, um, that think that way of thinking about the world through the lens of math generally and conceptually and not concretely, if that makes sense. Um, and, and same thing for whatever industry you're in that anyone's in. It's like, okay, now I'm in marketing. All right, so now I see everything, you know, from the, you know, the branding of the coffee shop that we're in to the, the furniture that we're sitting in. How would it look in our stores? You know, what does, um, you know, all the signage, exterior signage look like at a retail store versus mobile billboard branding, right? All these sorts of things that I've never thought about. Now I'm just looking through the lens of marketing. And so... Uh, I think it's really fascinating to see how um, we give meaning to life. I believe that there's no real, there's both no purpose to life, there's no meaning to life, and it's like we give meaning to everything. We have the ability to give meaning to everything. So it's, yes. like, so it's, it's both of them contradict. And so I think that's one of the things that math, that I, I haven't stumbled upon. Yeah, it's like math can fully reconcile. It's like one or the other. Um, it's like it has to be one or the other, but really I think it's both. It's like, yep, it's, uh, yeah, that, it's that's well, fascinating. You're, you're touching on one thing, which is do we have choice? <laughs> do we have the choice of the lens? Or are we born with the lens? Or can we alter the lens that we've been given? So there are fixed things, right? Like I didn't choose to be born April the 8th, 1959. I don't think I did. Um, well, the place of my birth, the time of my birth, and the culture I'm born into, and what, a, what, what role my parents play in that culture, huge impact. Um, so we got the DNA, which is this long mathematical sequence that I didn't choose. And then the second thing is we have the time, space, where I am in the time, space, culture, context, right? Um, but then the story that I elect to tell about it, that's the wild part. Because I can tell the story however I want. I can tell you a story in which I'm the villain, the arch, you know, enemy. And I can tell a story in which I'm the hero. I could tell a story in which I'm constantly victimized by my place and time. And, oh, I just have the worst luck, you know, that kind of thing. So once you realize that the way in which you tell the story uh, 
has an impact on how the story turns out, everything changes. Like once you realize that the lens you apply actually changes the world, that it changes stuff out there, then you're like, holy cow, I can, I, I've got more power than I thought I was because um, the way in which I chose to tell the story altered the outcome. It altered what somebody said. It altered how they treated me. And all of a sudden, all these things flow from that. And that's, that's really fascinating. So one thing I was going to say, and you can, you know, feel free to tell me I'm wrong, is that uh, one thing that I measure is not whether something's true or false. It could be completely false, demonstrably false. I just ask the question, is it useful for, for whichever lens I'm applying? Is that useful? So I was talking to my psychiatrist um, about alternatives to medications for anxiety and depression. And so we can, you know, you can do deep breathing, you can pet the dog, you can get more sunlight, more air, drink lots of water, get to bed on time, take a nice long walk in nature. Okay, so there are lots of things you can do. So I went out on the, the other and I said, somebody told me there are these magnets. So you can put a skull cap on your head and they have this transcranial magnet that has proven to be effective. And he said, yeah, I thought it was a joke. 20 years ago when I was doing a residency or a fellowship, I thought it was a joke. I was like, as if people don't laugh at psychiatrists enough. He goes, the damnedest thing, it works. Like it's very effective. He said, the reason I resisted it is because when I read the literature, they can't explain why it works. And I'm like, I don't care. I just care that it works. I don't care why it works. And so if you tell me that the placebo is just as effective, then just give me the placebo, but don't tell me. You know, go ahead and trick me. Uh, and give me the placebo if, you know, what you need to do is get my buy-in on the worldview that the placebo will work just as well. And then, it, and then my belief is what's doing it. You know, I don't need to know why a whole lot of things work. Just, just demonstrate that they might work for me and I'll try them unless there's a significant downside to me trying them. So I don't care if it's true or false. You don't have to prove it to me. Just... Let me see if it'll work for me. I love that, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, hey, is it going to serve me? Is it not going to serve me? But that's kind of the similar lens that I, I take as well. Um, something I like to do during the conversation is something that we don't do in normal conversations, which is take a pause. So um, we're always thinking about what question we're going to ask, what are we going to say next, you know. So I want to... You know, 30 seconds, one minute, we'll just kind of chill. Um, take this, everyone's got this rapid fire questions in conversations and podcasts. Uh, we'll take this proverbial ice bath <laughs> and cool down. And at the end of it, um, I'd like to ask you to ask me a question. Okay. And then we can keep going. Okay.
Awesome. Anything that comes to mind, Stuart? Um, what is a story from your childhood? Um, a story that you were told. It could be a personal story, or it could be a fable, a parable, a piece of um, spiritual literature. And that story you've held on to because it helped to explain the world or navigate the world in a certain way. And I, I can give you examples, but sure. I'd be curious about yours. Like a story that your parents read to you or told to you that you've always hung on to because you found that the story had, it helped you uh, navigate certain ages. It, it, it still is useful to you. The story is useful. Hmm, that's a good question. I probably, so the first thing that comes to mind is I actually don't think there's any like a specific like fable or you know something like that that like comes to mind um, that I like still keep top of mind. I think it's the overarching implicit story that my parents or like that we grew up with that we never really talked about, but like it's starting to surface now as we talk as a family, um, which is like this this immigrant mindset, the story of hard work, the story of sacrifice, the story of letting go of something for a greater good that you see within a family or a communal type of setting. A story of emotional repression, of not sharing fully what is on your mind or is in your heart. So, because, because, because we were taught to keep that in because it's about the external results. It's about the, all right, I have to do the next, I have to keep moving forward in a way that may not serve me. So I, I think the second part of your question, like hey, this, that, that I've held on to that serves me now, I think it's both sides. There are pieces of that that serve me well. There are pieces of that that I would like to unlearn and continue having discussion about with, with my parents and you know, with myself, with anyone else. Um, I think one of those things is like, is like sacrifice. Um, I think sacrifice is one of those things that's like, we, sacrifice has a, like a negative connotation in the fact that I didn't do something, I missed out on something, rather than the the positive version of that's like, hey, I strive for something. It's like almost push versus pull factors when you're looking you, for or you invest in. You did right. not invest your time here. You invested it over here. Right, exactly. And then the projection of that of those beliefs from parents onto, you know, me and my brother in this case of, hey, 
you have to sacrifice your a little bit of your maybe mental or emotional health for financial compensation or to be settled, quote unquote, right? And like, I think that is a story that um, was never explicitly told to us, but we saw it in real life. And perhaps that's potentially, a, you, know, you can make the case that's a more impactful story when you see it being modeled, um, where, you know, you see my, you know, my dad is, is working long hours, um, you know, health is, you know, could be better, um, has been worse, but could be better, right? All these sorts of things where, you know, do I want, do I want to live like that? Do I want to sacrifice things? You know, it depends again on what the definition of sacrifice is. Do I want to do things that I want to do at the expense of other things? Yeah, I would, I would call that prioritization, right? And alignment rather than sacrifice. Um, so I, I think th that's like a story that has come up um, with me and our family um, more and more. And I'm glad we're having those conversations um, as a family. Do your parents yeah. say one brother is working harder than the other is harder working than the other? <laughs> uh, Do they ever say you should work hard like, or I, he I, should work hard like, I, I, or are y'all both hard working and they're like, they don't compare? I don't think they've explicitly said that. I think there's been more trust in me than my brother. Are you older? I'm five years younger. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Well, see, <laughs> the first one always gets it harder because the expectations are higher. Right. And so it's really hard. And so I was the firstborn biologically and also in my adopted family. I was the firstborn. And, uh, and, and, and my dad told me, you're basically, you're lazy. And so I still think that I'm, that I'm lazy when I'm doing things all day long. Um, and there's always, whenever you compare, there's always gonna be one sibling's gonna be faster in a foot race. One sibling's gonna make more money than the other one, you know? And so if you have a family that values how fast you run a foot race, then somebody's gonna be the winner and somebody's right. gonna be the loser, <laughs> as opposed to saying, this one does really good in a foot race, but he can't make any money, you know? And this one makes a ton of money, but he can't run, he can't finish 100 yards, you know? And so it's in recognizing that everybody brings something to the table and it doesn't, I mean, comparison really doesn't serve us. Like, how does comparison, you know, famously the thief of joy, you know, serve us in that? But um, I, because I arise out of what's called as a white guy in America who uh, goes back um, uh, on father's side goes back four generations and mother's side goes back at least eight. So um, there's, there's what's called the Puritan work ethic. So even if you come over here and even if you have all this entitlement, like I could have been 
instantly in my father's law firm. I just had to get into any law school and then actually graduate. And then I would have been set, even if my grades had been terrible and then I barely gotten in and I cared nothing about being a lawyer, I would have been set by virtue of being his son. Now, I might have been a really terrible lawyer, but I would have been set. It would have been a safe path. Um, because, and that's what entitlement means. But there's this whole Puritan work ethic, which I think is really messed up. I think it's really been taken advantage of. And the Puritan work ethic is, it's not the immigrant story. It's that there's an inherent nobility in going out and sweating your ass off. And I'm like, why? Like, what's so noble about stupid work? You know, dig a hole, fill it up, dig a hole, fill it up, dig a hole, fill it up. What exactly is noble about that? You know, the, but the Puritans were like, oh, but it's not all, you know, you're learning what better ways to fill a hole and you're learning that life is suffering or some kind of lesson. I'm like, I can get that in about a day. <laughs> I don't need to have a whole career there. Oh, yeah. And, and also because the whole capitalist system has taken advantage of that. And then the real, the, the poor part of it is when you get to the point that unless you are both smart and hardworking and have a lot of luck and, and, and have a good community, then you can just do a lot of hard work. Um, I, I always tell this story um, when I worked in a restaurant chain, the manager pointed to the bus boy, the, the, the dishwasher, and he said, that guy washes dishes faster than anybody else. He said, he clears the racks. We're never without every piece of silverware. He, he can get that done like nobody else. He works so hard, never takes breaks, never complains. He said, do you know what his reward is? And I said, no. He said, he gets to keep washing dishes because we can't promote him and get anybody else who's done it as well as he does. So he'll either burn out and wise up and realize he could make a lot more money being a waiter or owning a restaurant, or he'll just keep washing dishes. And so, uh, you know, there are a lot of immigrant values that are incredibly worthwhile, but just working is not the ticket. It's not gonna get you. You have to also be smart. And so what happens usually in the immigrant experience is this generation works like crazy and then this generation like goes to college. And then that college becomes, and then they are in turn able to take care of the, of the parents, et cetera. And it's this sort of virtuous cycle. They create intergenerational wealth and are able to start this virtuous cycle. Yeah, the, like we've applied the rules of a physical manual job, like being in a factory of working, you know, 12 hour, 10 hour days into mental, emotional, or a mental and intellectual work. And the mind doesn't work the same way as the body. Right, and we've applied those same factorized out measures of output of physical labor. They are you, you just put in more hours, you get more output physically, and that makes sense for physical stuff. 
but mentally that's not the case and so that's why yeah like you have like people burning out younger and younger wanting to explore you know other careers other types of jobs you know quite quitting you know you know jumping from job to job more and i i don't think it's a it's a coincidence or it's uh it's it's not planned per se but i, I you know somewhere in between there yeah. Uh, so, and you do want to talk about applying meaning. Um, uh, you could say, well, yeah, I dug ditch, ditches and they didn't lead to anything, but I did it for you. And so, yeah, it was meaningless for me, but the only meaning was that I was able to get you out of here. You know, and that's a hugely powerful meaning. Um, but then it becomes where, you know, there's this, all this pressure put because look what I did for you. I sacrificed my whole life. And now you're not going to go to school. You're going to go off and join the circus, you know? And, and so that's, it's a little bit unfair, you know, because if I want to join the circus, you know, why, why should your digging ditches have any impact on me joining the circus. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's one of the things I've thought about recently. It's like purpose, meaning. These aren't necessarily things that my parents thought about. Right? Like it, the, the goal as parents is, all right, I'm going to have a set up a better life for my kids. What, what does that mean? Probably implicitly it was like better financially. But now I think society's transition to a better life means the ability to do whatever you want. And now when people aren't working as hard or lazier or doing things that aren't... I don't think they are by any way. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I have three millennials and a Gen Z and they will, you know, <laughs> eviscerate me because they all have full-time jobs with benefits. Right, exactly, right. So, yeah. I mean, they all work. They all show up and they all work. Oh, for sure, right? And it's and for different reasons, each one of them for different reasons, right? But like it's the or and it's the the ability to make that decision on your own with that financial um, backing. So basically, what my parents have done is with the financial stability of being immigrants and sacrificing what they have, you know, they've raised this floor. Mm -hmm. of what it alright so I think I restarted it but audio is still tracking so we're good um, yeah the other, other piece I was thinking about is like the the safe safe jobs piece of it like that is really interesting where like safe jobs for us is is really like a you know a, a doctor a lawyer engineer like education sets the floor safe jobs just really means for me hey you're not really good enough for like to really if you really want to be the best at something like a clown like you're saying right or whatever industry that may not make your parents happy or something There's like the safe jobs just implies that you're not really as good 
Uh, if you if you can be world class in something, go be world class at that, or attempt at least, right? Um, compared to, okay, I'll, I'll make you know 100k as a software engineer, right? I, I, that's my that's my take on that. Well, um, there's there's a British poem. Um, uh, Sir Thomas Gray's Elegy in a Churchyard, Country Churchyard, he says, let not ambition mock their useful toil. You know, and so I don't know for anybody else, uh, you know, if, if you want to be a software engineer or a porn star, and that is genuinely what you want to be, Okay. Okay. You know, um, now I will always have some kind of judgment of it, but that judgment is like, Stuart, if you don't want to be, if you don't, if you judge porn stars to be a waste of someone's life, great, Stuart, don't be a porn star, don't be a software engineer, go do you, you know, but don't exert any of your energy having opinions about what your kids should do or what anybody else should do because that's just like a waste of my energy you know I just got to decide for me and I think you know there's sometimes when I need to work for the man you know uh, there's sometimes when I need to you know go on government assistance whether it's social security or Medicaid or whatever we go through these times it's just that you know, we're very blessed that we get to work through various incarnations within this life. There'll be a time I'll be the student. There'll be a time I'll be the teacher. There'll be a time I'll do this. There'll be a time I'll do that. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes life interesting. Probably not going to be a 64-year-old porn star. I don't, think that, I don't think that's in the cards right now. But you never know. Thanks for changing. I mean, well, I mean, you, you do have experience being in front of the camera. Of the camera. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, it's. Uh, I mean, well, one thing you mentioned at the beginning was like, what you were talking about, what you were grateful for. To start bringing this full circle is about journaling. Like, hey, when is that a practice that you have? Um, I, I have had it and I probably will have it and I, I would be happier and better and more complete and also more if I did have it. But I think people and myself, I'll just speak for myself, I have a certain idea of what journaling looks like and it, it can be just writing, writing down the first thing I think about in the morning. It can be just writing that down or, you know, gratitude lists and what gratitude lists look like. And they could be um, that I didn't have to pay for cookies at Whole Foods today because this guy bought a bag of cookies and he had not one but two extra cookies left over and he goes, here, I have them. So I got two free cookies. Um, so it can be the uh, granular, the little itty bitty things, and then it can be the big things like things that came up that were sort of revealed through our conversation. Um, but that if I write them down and I look back through them, then that kind of knowledge is codified 
And I can go back and say, oh, well, here's where I was on that particular day. And, you know, you, you, you kind of get, knowledge grows on itself. And my wife and I were like, um, I read all this conflicting result, like uh, they said that uh, things that will ward off, you know, Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, and they said, on the one hand, my wife is putting together this a thousand part um, uh, jigsaw puzzle. Um, and it's of all these birds, but she's left with the last, let's say 100 all white pieces. Like every one of them is white. So she has hold here, hold here, hold here, hold here. And they're all white. So she is meticulously, so they say TV rots your brain. So we're watching uh, Beef on Netflix. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Oh my God. Okay. Do you get Netflix? Yeah, yeah, I'll check it out. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, it's up there with The Wire, uh, Breaking Bad, Sopranos. It's some of the best television ever. Okay. It's unbelievable. And it's an, it's, it's an epic tale about vengeance and about you know having a beef and not being able to let go of anger, resentment, the past. Oh my God. And the other thing is, kind of like The Wire was almost an all black cast, this is all Asian. So it might be Korean, Chinese, Japanese, even Filipino, but as a white guy, I'm getting all this and this is against the background of centuries, millennia old conflicts, only they're imported to this. So anyway, um, so we're watching Beef and I'm like binge watching it and they're saying, yeah, you probably don't want to watch more than one, maybe two hours of TV a day. And I'm saying, but my wife is offsetting it by doing the, <laughs> by doing the Wordle and, the, right. and they said ping pong, also ping pong, mm. keeps, you, keeps your brain. And you know what? Conversation. Conversation will keep your brain from rotting. Um, uh, ideas and the ability to, because this is just verbal ping pong. Mm. Love that, yeah, verbal ping pong. I was playing ping pong. We have a table at the office. Um, so I was playing some ping pong yesterday with, um, with someone. So it was, yeah, exactly. It's, you're going back and forth. You're asking questions. You're hitting the ball harder sometimes, sometimes a little bit slower rally. A little more spin sometimes. But the goal is to have the longest volley, I think. The goal is not for me to <coughs> put it away on Psy. Take that, Psy. <laughs> Drop my boom. <laughs> so it's an infinite game. Yeah. Just keep enjoying the rally. Yeah, and steel sharpens steel. It gets, I learned things from you. I was going to ask you about and I, a very uh, racist, presumptuous question. I was going to ask you about uh, Krishna and Arjuna. Uh -huh. uh, do you know anything about Krishna and Arjuna? Uh, I mean, I, I know the characters, but I definitely not anything that you should be asking me about that I would have any major insight on. Okay, because yeah. I want to. I want to learn about that. I want to learn about the story. Yeah, that's an epic. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I would probably go straight to the source of the, you know, Bhagavad Gita, Ramayana, etc. Okay. So I would just go straight to the source there and then. Because there's oh. a lot of 
good you, text in there. You I, gave I, me I a great book, which I'm almost, uh, you didn't give it to me, you recommended, and I immediately bought it, um, which was the Diamond Cutter, uh -huh. because I asked you what's the most spiritual text, one of the most spiritual texts. Um, so give me another book. <sighs> I liked, I don't think I've read too many like spiritual religious texts. I would say I read The Journey Home by Ratanath Swami. It was, it was a, it was an autobiography. Um, he wrote, you know, I think within the last 10, 15 years. So um, it's a, it's an American, you know, Swami, American guru who travels you know, born in Chicago and then travels to India, basically broke, you know, right after college. Or, you know, some version of that when he was really young. So he talks about his travels there and the journey home being the journey to this, you know, uh, monastery, you know, temple like Himalayas. And so he talks about all the trial and tribulations along the way there. So it was, uh, I, I, you know, I got a lot from it. Um, and it was, it was a nice, easy read. It's not a spiritual text per se, but it's the understanding of someone's spiritual journey. So for me, that was a good, uh, valuable read. Yeah, look it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Stuart, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, is there anything else that, that's been on your mind at all that you want to share? Um, along the lines of the diamond cutter, um, how have you found uh, applications for a spiritual life or a spiritual quest in the world of entrepreneurship? How do you practice uh, values, ethics, or uh, a spiritual path in business or is it business just business mm, the direct answer to that is no i don't view business as just business so i think there is the concept of trying to bring spirituality into business okay but here's business and how can we inject spirituality in here right i think that's the typical view and that's probably what i've thought of it as In the last couple of years, I've thought about it. What if we flipped that framework? And it was, what if there was spirituality and we brought business into spirituality, right? So it's like, hey, I think spirituality is a more, is the largest, largest concentric circle and like business just happens to be one part of it. So really, okay, business is, what is business? It's like, you know, it's a, it's a career. It's a way of making um, money that can support us, et cetera, right? So, and then is it something that creates fulfillment for us? So then, you know, that, that's a little bit more overlapping circle of, of spirituality, fulfillment, mission, purpose. So how I view that now is, am I in flow? That's probably the main thing. Am I in flow when I'm doing work, quote unquote, work? Does work- How do you know if you're in flow? when it doesn't feel like work. Ah. So, so work, I was talking, thinking about this a couple of days ago, work, you know, 
mathematically, physically, is force and displacement. Right? Work equals force times distance, force times displacement. And there's this like, hey, there's work-life balance, you know, balance work and play. And I was like, okay, I, I don't want to be working my life. I don't. I want to be playing. Right? I want to be having conversations like this. Right? I want this to be work. I want this to be play. And when I can't distinguish between the two, that's where I want to be. So, so then I was like trying to define with my mathematical background. I'm like, okay, how can I quantify play then? So for me, play comes down to two factors as well. Uh, one is ease. Does it come to me with ease? And then the second one is presence. Am I in the moment? Am I here? Right? Like if it's a, if it's a conversation sometimes where, you know, I've been on my phone here, right? Um, or, you know, whether it's dinner with a friend or a family, it's like, are we actually present there? Are we, are we just, is our body there, but our soul and our mind is, is somewhere else, right? So like when you think about a kid at, who's playing, right? They're really not anywhere else. They're in the moment, they're just running around, they're playing with other kids or other, you know, adults, whoever it is, their parents. And they're at ease. They don't really care about anything of what's going on. So I want to be in that state. I want to be in play when I and get paid for it. Get paid for play. <laughs> so so that's how I view the the conjunction of spirituality and business. You should say pay to play. Yeah. <laughs> you want to get paid to play. Exactly. <laughs> so what is your um, highest and best talent that you think you know the universe gave me X by virtue of my parents, my DNA, my natural inclination. Uh, what's what's your highest talent? Doesn't have to be the one that the world will pay you most. And clowning is on the table. It's still on the table. <laughs> um, I want to ask you that. I'll ask, you know. Hopefully, you're thinking of a. Same answer, or, you know, the answer to that question. Won't yourself. be the same. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. So for me, I'd probably say, like, writing slash ideation. Mm. I think that's when I'm in play. That's when I'm in flow. And you express your ideas in, in writing. words. Yeah, words. Written words. Yeah, I think words, pictures as well, like diagrams, charts, some sort of math. Like, the combination of mathematics and language and expressing that in some way i think that's where my the overlapping part You're, of venn diagrams are i keep thinking about a book which you may or may not know it's called um the visual display of quantitative information i've heard it okay. it's about the aesthetics of the way in which we present data hmm. you know everything from pie graph to uh, uh, Venn diagrams to whatever. It's, it's about visually displaying. One of the big things is to, to make the visual display of data um, proportionate. And because right. sometimes you don't have a big enough page. You know, if you present the earth as this big, 
you're not going to be able to present the solar system without getting a much bigger page. You know? right. <laughs> and so you're going to have to present it. And you can't switch and say, now this is millions of light years and this is miles. Mm -hmm. you know? um, okay. How about on your end? Um, conversation is part of it, like the spoken word. Um, engaging with people. Uh, a lot of times, whether I'm talking to Cara this morning or talking to Sai this afternoon, um, they seem to get value out of the conversation. Um, even, or sometimes especially, if I'm asking a really hard question that they don't necessarily want to answer. And, um, Sometimes it's important to ask that question anyway, even if you're not going to get an answer. And sometimes you should just not push people because they're not, they don't. Sometimes you can, I, you, I can see things in people and they're, they're just, they just, they're not ready. They don't want to, and I can push them and push them and they're still not going to see it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like, um, and you can keep trying to lead them, like, do you think that your constant rage about blank is really making you happy? Um, you can keep asking that, and the answer is, uh, I'd rather be full of rage than let go of this worldview, because if I let go of it, then what, what am I, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so some people aren't ready to be engaged like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, I was engaged the entire time. <laughs> oh God, yeah, sure. I hope it works. I hope yeah, it works. Sure. If you want, if you ever want to do it again, we'll do it again. For sure, no, but. And